Morning. It's such a privilege and honor to be here uh, because I'm, I'm usually not here, actually. I, I've got my notes all out of order from this morning earlier. Um, but I, I said earlier that I'd, I'd lived in various different countries, and one of those countries, uh, my role was to start Youth for Christ. And uh, it was really interesting because we developed quite a strong youth ministry there. And I remember one day having a crazy idea. My crazy idea was to take them to a theme park, an amusement park. So I put them all on a bus. We went to this park. They got off and they said, listen, there's a killer ride at this place, a ride that we absolutely need to go on. And I'm up for absolutely anything. And so I said, okay, let's do it. Let's find it. We spent an hour and a half trying to find this ride. At that point, I've had enough. I'm hungry. So I go up and say, listen, you keep looking. I'm going to go get something to eat. And I find a shawarma stand. And if you don't know what shawarma is, I'm going to just say in the most horrendous way. But it's basically greasy meat wrapped up in pita bread. And it's so delicious. It's just lovely. So I had two of these things. And at that moment, the youth group returns and say, we found the ride. So I'm like, great, let's go to it. Let's get to this ride. I go to the ride. It's like got, it's an octopus thing. It's got legs coming out of it. I find my seat strap up. And we start to move, and we're moving, and I'm thinking, this is pretty lame. What? We've been queuing up and waiting for this thing forever. And then it starts to spin like a washing machine. And I'm like, okay, this is all right. It's okay. It's okay. And then it stops, and I think, oh, that's it. And then it starts to go backwards. And then it starts to spin and do some other exciting things. At this point, the two swarmers in my stomach have determined that I am a terrible host. And they would like out. And so I can feel these things coming up. And at the point they're coming up, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm about to... Uh, you know, uh, yes, into the atmosphere. The entire content of my stomach is about to go into the atmosphere and my youth group are all going to hit it. And the shame that I'm going to live with, I will never be let down. So in that moment, as it's literally coming up, I give out the shortest prayer I think I'd ever prayed, which is, God, make it stop. And by the grace of God, the ride stops. I get off the ride. Uh, The youth group come bounding up to me and they say, let's do it again. At which point I say, no. You can do it again. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to imagine. Uh, sorry, I sit down. I begin to imagine what it would be like to be on a ride. That when it gets too fast, when it gets too difficult, when you just don't like it anymore, you can just reach down and grab a handbrake and take control. Wouldn't that be amazing? Just me then and, and Leon. We think it'd be amazing, but the problem with that is that if you do that, you will miss out on the experience of the ride. You will miss out what the ride has got for you. And in life, God has got an incredible plan for all of us. But there are times when things get difficult. There are times when things are really not going to plan or the way we want them to go. And we just want to reach down and take control. And usually it's because we are afraid and fear presents itself. And when fear presents itself, it can just be overwhelming. In the Bible, it says, doesn't it, do not be afraid. It says it 366 times, one for every day and one for a leap year. You know that. And when difficulties come and things are hard, we want to take comfort in those verses. And most of the time we can. But sometimes some things will be so strong. Some things will be so overwhelming that actually we don't find comfort in it. It's not doing it for us. It's not giving us the peace that we need. Even though it's in Scripture, it's not quite doing it. Because that thing, whatever it is, has just taken a grip and a hold of us and it's overwhelming for us and we need that peace but we're not finding it there. And so often we create a metaphorical handbrake. We do whatever we can to avoid that which will stress us, that which will bring fear. And we are controlled by that by simply ignoring it. And for some of us here today, and there'll be others that this message is totally irrelevant for, but for some of us here today, we are wrestling with storms that are so big so loud, so overwhelming that we don't quite know what to do or how to handle them and it's just becoming too much. 
Exodus 14, the passage I'd love to look at with you, if I may, a passage that you know extremely well. The context is that Moses has just come on the scene. He's been sent by God to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, let my people go, to which, of course, Pharaoh says no continually, and then awful things then happen, such as the plagues, and then the mother of all things happen when the angel of death just hovers over Egypt and wipes out all of the firstborn sons, leaving Pharaoh, and the entire Egyptians devastated by what's happened. And he then relents, doesn't he? And he says, okay, you can go, be free. And then we come across an interesting uh, uh, part in, in Exodus 14, verse 4a, where it says, and once again I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after me. So Pharaoh changes his mind, doesn't he? Because God has hardened his heart. But there's a question to be asked. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? It doesn't seem really very fair because this is a narrative that you'll find in other verses throughout leading up to this part where Pharaoh makes a decision and then God changes Pharaoh's mind and heart. Where is the free will here and how is this fair? Well, there's a context to this. The context is that Pharaoh has claimed to be divine. Pharaoh has claimed to be God. And what's more, not only is Pharaoh claimed to be God and have divine powers, but he's also taken captive Yahweh's chosen people. This is personal. God has taken his gloves off, and he is about to prove to Pharaoh who truly is God. And you see in verse 18 where it says, When I'm finished with Pharaoh, all of Egypt will know that I'm God. When Joy and I were, 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 we just got married about two years into that, we discovered that Joy was pregnant and we were just so excited. We just were just beside ourselves with excitement and we were waiting for the scan. We'd got our pound for the, for the image that you get that looks like a cloud and doesn't look at all like a baby, but for whatever reasons we buy those things and we were, we were ready for it. That morning uh, uh, when we were about to go, uh, Joy about five in the morning wakes up and says, I'm bleeding and uh, it wouldn't stop, so she was clearly having a miscarriage, and we got her in the car and drove to a Greenwich Hospital, and unfortunately, Greenwich Hospital didn't have a car park, so I had to leave her at A&E and drive around the streets of London trying to find somewhere to park. By the time I'd got back to A&E and asked where Joy was, what's happening, they said, well, obviously, you've lost the baby, but we couldn't stop the bleeding, so we'd taken her into surgery. Now, I had no idea what that meant. No one explained to me what it meant. You couldn't stop the bleeding, and I went into panic mode, but, of course, Joy was fine, But eventually, after that, nobody also told us that you suffer, can suffer from grief from having a miscarriage. We didn't know that. And we were just overwhelmed with this sadness and this narrative that was going on for us. And we just wouldn't talk about it. It was just so very, very difficult for us. Months and months later, Joy gets a phone call, and it's from a friend who isn't a Christian. He said, you know, last night I had a dream, and in that dream, you were pregnant. It was so vivid, so I want to ask you, are you pregnant? And uh, Joy said no, and the very memory and the thought of it just brought back pain for us, for her. And then the following night, 24 hours later, a phone call goes. It's from another friend who doesn't know the other person, isn't a Christian, and says, last night I had a dream, and in that dream you were pregnant. I just want to know, are you pregnant? To which Joy said no, but that's kind of weird. The following night, three nights in a row in succession, the phone goes, from a different person, doesn't know the other two people, isn't a Christian, said, last night I had a dream, and in that dream you were pregnant. I just want to know, are you pregnant? To which Joy said, maybe. <laughs> I need to get back to you. And we discovered that Jake was well and truly on the way. But you know, the irony of the situation is that even though God revealed in such a powerful way that Jake was coming into the world, we were still stressed and worried that she might have a miscarriage. How ironic it can be that even though God speaks, we can still be filled with fear and doubt. And in verses 5 and 6, 
It says, when word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all these Israelite slaves get away? They asked. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariots and called upon his troops. Pharaoh has changed his mind. These Israelites, they belong to him and they will be brought back into slavery as far as he is concerned. He owns them and they are going to be his. And some of us here today are so filled with fear because of what has happened to us in the past that it has a grip on us. So much so that we reach a place where actually we're now afraid of fear itself. And for some of us, we just can't shake that off and it holds us captive. And you know, for us, even though God had spoken so powerfully, so amazingly, we were still filled with a sense of fear that, gosh, what if, what if she still has a miscarriage? Even though he'd spoken in an extraordinary way. He spoke to the Israelites in extraordinary ways, telling them that he was going to let them go and they will be free. But still, they were crippled with a sense of what if. However, we can so quickly become prisoners to our history, can't we? Even though we live in freedom. We can have a historic narrative that still holds us even though we are free from that which once had a grip on us. Now, let me fast forward 17 years, if I may. At this point, we're living in Chiang Mai, Thailand, And Jake and I have just gone to the cinema. He's 16. And we just watched James Bond in a mixture of English and Thai. And we understood about 20% of it. We come out and we're in the car driving. And Jake's, uh, we were talking about the movie. And then Jake says, you know, Dad, my my little finger, I I can't feel it. I'm such a sympathetic and warm father, by the way. I'm just giving you a heads up. So I look at Jake and say, Jake, have you been cracking your knuckles again? And he said, yes, Dad, I have. I said, well, that's the problem, you idiot. Don't crack your knuckles. There's the message for you. Okay, Dad. We go home. Next morning, he gets up, and he's still talking about his finger and his hand. He's saying, it just feels not right. I said, yeah, but we talked about this yesterday. Okay, Dad goes to school. Joy gives me a call halfway in the afternoon. He says, Jake's been sent home from school. I come home, and uh, we, we go through what's happening, and, and, and I'm thinking, he's just like, you know, just get a grip. Just sort your life out and get back to school. But Joy's a nurse by background. She says, no, I think this is more serious. You need to go to hospital. I do not want to go to hospital for the simple reason you have to pay for medical care and they always give you more tests than you need and you come out bankrupt from just one visit to the hospital I don't want that today so I'm driving the car saying Jake listen be straight with them don't exaggerate don't make things up don't make it bigger than it is just be straight just say it's about your finger your hand nothing else okay dad I've got it because I know before long he's going to have an MRI and all sorts of other things going on just from his finger anyway we get there and he's heard me and he's nodded and uh, we sat, in the, sat waiting, and they call his name. I get up. He gets out of the chair, and now he's literally walking like a duck. And I'm like, Jake, we just talked about this. What are you doing? He says, Dad, I don't know. My legs just don't feel right. I'm thinking my wallet is definitely not going to feel right at the end of this trip. We go in there, and 10 minutes later, a gurney's turned up. The doctor said, listen, he, we're admitting him. He's in a bad way. I switch with Joy. She comes in, spends the night at hospital. When I arrive at 9 o'clock the next morning, I'm not prepared for what, what I then saw. Jake was paralyzed from the waist down. Whatever was going on, it was acting fast. I relieved Joy, and, I, and for the rest of the day, I spent the day with Jake driving from hospital to hospital across Chiang Mai, having various different tests. And uh, by 4.30 in the afternoon, he was paralyzed from the neck down. This was acting so fast. It was now moving to his heart and his lungs, and he was in a critical condition. The doctor says, listen, we know what the problem is. Uh, We know how to treat it. 
but you, he's going to need six, seven, eight injections. They cost about $5,000 per injection. Um, so we can treat him or we can put him on life support uh, uh, care right now, but we need to do it. We can't hang around. I'm like, well, give me five minutes. So I go off and I phone our insurance company who I'd been trying to call all day and they hadn't been picking up. I finally get them and I say, listen, we don't know. We don't know if we can cover this. Well, you just got to go with it and then we'll tell you at the end of it. Well, gosh, I don't have $50,000. I go back in, and the doctor's like, come on, what, what, what do you want to do? Do you want to treat him, or do you want to put him on life support? And at that point, Jake looks up, and all he can move now is his neck and his, and his head, and he looks at me, and he says, Dad, please let them treat me. In verse 9 and 10 here, we see it says, it says, the Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army and all his horses and chariots, his charioteers and his troops. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel, and they were camped beside the shore, as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked. When they saw the Egyptians overtaking them, they cried out to the Lord. Pharaoh was relentless. He brought his army. They were on the horizon. They were chasing down after them. The Israelites could see them coming, were filled with fear. Even though God had spoken in the most extraordinary way, they were still filled with fear. And we could see with our boy that the problem was in plain sight and it was chasing him and it was now attacking his heart and we needed to make a decision real quick. This was a terrible, terrible situation to be in and I didn't have solutions. I don't have $50,000 and if you don't have the money, then they don't release them even after they're better. They have to stay in hospital until they're released, until you get the money and that bill, of course, only gets bigger and bigger and this was a spiraling impact for us. But I look at my boy who's looking at me in absolute bewilderment and he says, Dad... Will you let him treat me? And of course, I've got nowhere to go, but I'm going to say, of course, Jake. And he's rushed off into ICU, and he's connected to all sorts of machines. And I'm on duty that night, and I remember lying on the floor, looking at my boy, thinking, what if? What if this just goes south real quick? What if he doesn't recover? What if he's paralyzed for the rest of his life? What if? And as I'm thinking all these negative thoughts of what if, it's as if God at that moment cut right through it and said, but don't you remember don't you remember how I introduced him to you in the first place? Before any tests were ever confirmed that, that, that there was a baby on the way, I told you he was coming. Don't you remember that? I've got it. Within three days, he had movement again. Within a week, he was walking. Within a month, everything had returned back to normal. Most people who have this illness, some of them die. Some are paralyzed for the rest of their life. You most take about two years to recover. Jake was bouncing around in a nick of no time. And the insurance company came back and said, we're going to pay the whole thing in full. So let me ask you, if I may, what do you perceive to be on your horizon? What do you see chasing down after you? Perhaps it's an issue to do with health and it's filling you with fear. Perhaps it's an issue to do with employment or exams or it's a retirement challenge you've got. I don't know, but whatever it is, it's real to you and it's big and it's large and it screams and it screams so loud that you can no longer hear the voice of God because of the noise it generates. I don't know what you're facing. Maybe you're in a good place right now and that's great, but maybe you've got something that is hunting you down. So when we return to Britain... I was uh, given a month to switch from my role uh, from the US to then find a house here and get the kids in school and register for all sorts of things that you wouldn't think you'd have to register for until you come back into a country. And we were doing all those things. But I also went to see a doctor, and I, and I remember this meeting very, very well. 
I said, listen, I, 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 I've been seeing doctors in America because I've had a memory issue and, I, and, and my memory is not what it should be and I, I, can't, I can't at times construct sentences and I'll be in meetings where I just have to be quiet because I can't formulate what I'm supposed to say because the words are not there. The other day I forgot the alphabet, I stopped at E, I didn't know what came after E, so clearly that's not right. He listens and then he says, after 15 minutes of seeing me, he says, well, I know your problem. And I'm thinking, wow, this guy is really super good because I've been in seeing all sorts of doctors about this and this guy can diagnose me in 15 minutes. This is amazing. And he says, yeah, I know your problem. Your problem is that you've got the early stages of dementia. You've got the, you've got the, the start of Alzheimer's. And I had full clarity of thought that day and I had no problem telling him what I thought of his diagnosis. And we had a heated debate in his surgery. It was so heated that he actually eventually asked me to leave. That's the first time that's ever happened. But as I was leaving, he said, I can see you're not satisfied with my diagnosis, which was clearly I wasn't. And he said, I'll get you a referral. It took nine months to see a referral. I was leading you for Christ, thinking that I may have dementia, not knowing how long I've got in that role, not knowing what's going to happen. I eventually saw the consultant and he said, uh, okay, let's do some tests. We did a test and he said, listen, I can tell you categorically, you don't have Alzheimer's, you don't have dementia. You clearly got something, we need to figure this out. So I had an MRI, that took another four months. Off the back of that, he said, well, no, you don't have a brain tumor, we're okay here, but there's a problem, so let's work through it. And at the end of that, he said, okay, I, I think I know what the issue is. And so I said, great, what, what is it? And he said, well, your problem is you have PTSD. And I said, post-traumatic stress disorder. He said, yeah. And I said, listen, I clearly don't have that. I've never been to war. I'm not a soldier. Don't belittle their experience with comparing it with mine. The two are not together. And he said, well, let's talk through the narrative here. Let's talk through your story. I said, okay. You told me you lived in the Middle East. And I said, yeah. You told me you were a missionary. Yes. You told me that most of the time you were feeling a sense of pressure because you were doing things which the law of the land would see as illegal. I said, yes, you told me that your phone was bugged, that the police were stationed outside your house, that your emails were, were, were intercepted, that your office had been raided, that you had been followed a few times. I said, yes, that's all true. You told me that when you moved to Thailand, within two weeks, your problem started. I said, yes, and he said, that's because your brain said it's safe now, and everything just cascaded in. And I remember it. I remember two weeks having moved to Thailand, a new role, the, the area director for Asia Pacific, new challenge. And I remember one day from absolutely nowhere being hit with this unbelievable sense of anxiety that I just didn't know where it came from or why it came. And it wouldn't leave 24-7 it was following. And it just wouldn't go away and life began to get very, very dark very quickly. I remember that I couldn't sleep and when I did sleep I had the same recurring nightmare over and over and over again which was someone was coming to get me and I was in trouble and I just couldn't escape it. And I remember one day just being so crippled by the whole thing, lying in a fetus position. And my prayer, my only prayer was fight for me. I couldn't articulate anything else. I could just say over and over again, fight for me, fight for me, fight for me, because that's all I could utter. And when I did get the strength and the ability to do my job, I was sat at the airport in Chiang Mai, about to take a trip to Japan. And I'm sat there and I'm reading my Bible. And as I read it, it's Exodus 14, verse 13 and 14, and it says, But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. And there it was. I'd read this passage, I don't know how many times, but I'd never noticed that it says that God will actually fight for you. The Lion and Lamb song hadn't been written at this point. And I thought, gosh, it's there. God will fight for me. And I would love to tell you that at that moment, 
Everything was resolved. At that moment, it was all fixed, but it wasn't. But what I did do was write that passage out, and I put it in my wallet, and I carried it around with me. And every time I was being crippled by anxiety or whatever it was that was coming up, I would read that passage over and over again, finding comfort in the fact that God promises to fight for me. This went on and on and on. And I remember being at a conference, and there was an invitation to come up for prayer like you would expect. And I came up to prayer. I didn't tell the person what was going on. And I just simply said, would you pray? And she prayed, and as she was praying, she said, listen, I've got to stop because I really feel God is saying something. I said, what is God saying? And she said, I really feel that God is saying that he is fighting for you. And there it was again. I came back to Britain about five, six months in my job, still waiting for, for a consultant meeting, still living with the, 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 the diagnosis of having Alzheimer's, thinking, how can I do my job? Still clouded by thoughts. And as I walk into my office, on my desk, someone had left a note saying, I was praying for you yesterday, and Exodus 14, verse 14 came to me, and I feel that God is saying that he will fight for you. And there it was again, three times. God was speaking in a cloud. God was speaking in a storm. God was speaking in a turbulent issue that made no sense whatsoever. And I don't suffer anymore with anxiety. I don't suffer with those issues as they were But what it did was it left an impact. It left a a cognitive damage because the amount of stress that I'd undergone for so many years had an impact on how my mind functions. There are days when I literally will sit in a meeting and be quiet because I've got no ability to construct the words that I need to say. But here's the thing. when When you direct and lead an organization, the size and the weight of you for Christ, you know you have to depend on him. You know that he, when he says he is with you, has to be true. And when he says that he will fight for you, it has to be true. God just doesn't promise it. He delivers on it. So let me ask you this. If you wrestle with fear and anxiety, if there are storms that hit your life that are so overwhelming, that scream so great, have they become so big that they seem greater and bigger than God himself? Because to be honest with you, that can become our narrative and that can become true to us. But simply because it seems true to us does not make it true. Let me finish, if I may, by telling you a story that when we lived in Chiang Mai, Thailand, it is surrounded by mountains and they are huge mountains. Uh, Doi Saket is one of them and its presence is majestic and it just looms and over, over the city and you, it's just beautiful. But for four months of the year, they have burning season where they will literally just burn, the farmers will burn the fields. And uh, for the first two weeks, the pollution in the air is just getting dire and the mountains begin to fade. They disappear after the second week. And when you get to about the third month, you begin to question whether the mountains are there at all. You can no longer see any evidence of them. You can barely see them on the end of the road. Were they really that close? Are they there? Were they somewhere else? Was it a previous trip? And then the government instructs the farmers to stop burning. And uh, then they have a festival called Songkran, which is a Buddhist festival. And it's basically a giant water fight. And there's so much water that's entering the, into the atmosphere, that it completely clears the pollution. And there is stood the majestic mountains that you thought were there, but had not seen for so long. And there are times, aren't there, when actually the storms hit so, so mightily that actually we're hanging on to even, do I actually believe that? Is it really true? And you're waiting for that moment when he reveals himself again. See, fear can creep in. We can be faced with our history that just won't let go. We can see danger on the horizon and we just don't know what to do. 
And we can be consumed by anxiety and we can then begin to question, is God actually even there? And if he is there, has he in effect abandoned me? And am I on my own in this? But the truth of the matter is this, that God is present. He's aware of our situation and he's working away whether actually we can see him or not. And whether he removes the pollution or whether it stays, he is still consistently there and he is whispering the same thing over and over again, which is do not be afraid. Stay where you are. I will rescue you. I will fight for you. Stay where you are. I will rescue you. I will fight for you. See, God is not a puny God. He's not a puny God at all. When he declares to do something, he will do it, and we should expect only one outcome, and we see the outcome worked out beautifully in Exodus 14 when he absolutely crushes Pharaoh and his mighty army in a moment. And if you're here today under a sense of captivity, you just can't cope anymore. You're living with secrets. There are battles of your history that just won't stop talking to you. You're filled with fear and you're lacking hope. Hold on and recognize that God is aware He is with you and he is promising over and over, I am fighting for you and I will bring you freedom in this situation. For some of us, that freedom is here today. For others of us, it is simply the encouragement to know, stay strong, stay focused, allow him to bring you you peace that you will need. And in Psalm 121, it says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains and where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. So whatever you're facing, whatever's going on, be assured he knows and be assured that he's not only with you, he's fighting for you. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you, Lord, that you work all things out to your glory. I thank you, Lord, in loss, you bring life. I thank you, Lord, in pain, you bring healing. And I thank you, Lord, as we battle and weary through life, you give us strength. And I pray, Lord, today for those of us who are caught up where we sense something on the horizon chasing us down, where we're filled with fear and anxiety and we don't know what to do, Lord, I thank you that you have us. But I pray, Lord, today you would bring healing and pray, Lord, today you would bring freedom and today, Lord, you would bring comfort and today you would speak so clearly that you are with us, that you're fighting for us and you will bring freedom. Amen.